Welcome to the podcast, Most People Don't, But You Do. Stories and conversations about the benefits received and the fulfillment enjoyed by doing what most people don't. This is Bart Berkey, CEO and founder of Most People Don't. We're a motivational storytelling company where we provide enabling tools to empower you to do what most people don't. I just realized that I said most people don't about 18 times, but that's okay. Special guest today. Here's how I wanna lay the groundwork for who this gentleman is. Most people don't dedicate 22 years of their life to protect their country, to serve in the intelligence and special operations fields of the United States Army. That's one point. Most people don't use their military leadership style to win numerous state volleyball championships for high school volleyball teams in the DC metro region. Most people don't write multiple books and use words that I don't know and I have to look up. But this gentleman does. I'm very proud to welcome to the podcast, Mr. John Senchek. I know him simply as coach. You're probably going to hear me refer to him during this podcast interview as coach. Um, but he's also a, a friend and a mentor, retired first sergeant in the U.S. Army, head volleyball coach, co-founder of Cheer One Volleyball Club in Northern Virginia, also an author, and also a whole lot of other things that we're going to talk about. So, John, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Was that an embarrassing introduction? Uh, a little bit. I got a little bit uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah. See, and I didn't even ask you for all those things. I had to do all the research from books and whatever else I could find out about you from the web and things that I know. But anyway, thrilled that you are here. And uh, I've known you for a bunch of years. You initially were the volleyball coach for my daughter. And I loved your style. And at one point, I said, look, if there's anything I can do to help out, and then you started getting moving from one school to another school, getting state championships. And finally, I started coaching club volleyball with you and then uh, was your junior varsity coach for Loudoun County High School. So, um, again, proud to know you. You set a great example for me for many different reasons, and we're, we'll share those here momentarily. But knowing what you've accomplished so far in your life, how did you become how you are? Tell us about growing up in Pennsylvania. Oh, okay. Uh, that's a lot of stuff there. I know. Mr. Berkey. Uh, I, but I do want to take a moment to, to shout out to my junior varsity volleyball coach who just completed an undefeated season at Loudoun County High School. That, so, that would be me. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, so Pennsylvania, I, I have to admit that I wasn't, I didn't become the person I am uh, through my childhood experiences. They, uh, I, I was one of seven children and uh, single mother and just you know uh, we, we were kind of country poor uh, so poor that you didn't realize you were poor uh, we found our entertainment outside I went to a catholic school for nine years I was an altar boy you know that that kind of sheltered you know not a lot of exposure growing up mm -hmm. but my my maturation and becoming the person that I became uh, I was in the military I was in the United States Army at the age of 17 and that's where I started to, to figure out who I was and what I was going to become. Yeah. And, and John, at that point, so was it right out of high school that you joined the military? Yes, it was. Less than 30 days after I graduated from high school, I was on a bus heading to Fort Jackson, South Carolina. Oh, my gosh. And, and what prompted that decision? My stepfather. My stepfather is a, a, lot, of, a lot of credit to a guy who would take on a family with seven children. Uh, but he's retired U.S. Army. He was a military policeman. 
uh, we, again, we, we did not have a lot of financial resources growing up in Pennsylvania. Uh, college was not an option for me. So his recommendation was join the army. The army will put you through college. You'll gain a skill and you'll grow up a little. And those were all, the, all those things came to pass. Well, wow. when, when did you know it was the right thing for you? So 17 years old, right out of high school, when did you know that it was the right thing versus, oh my gosh, I made a huge mistake and I'm committed? Uh, I initially, it was, oh my God, this is a huge mistake. Uh, boot camp is not the place for a 17 year old backwoods kid from Pennsylvania, but it was, it took a long time. And I think Bart, it's, it's fair to say that, you know, the process of becoming the person that I am is not complete. So there are a lot of phases along the way where I recognize this is a good experience and I'm, I'm benefiting from it, but it, it took many years before I got to the point. I was a special operator before I realized that, okay, I'm making a difference and this is the person I want to be. Um, I had a short break in service after my first four years because it just was not a good experience. Uh, but I, you know, the long and short of it is I, I learned, uh, I was a Chinese linguist when I first joined the army uh, and I went to the 25th infantry division in Hawaii and went to South Korea and, didn't touch anything Chinese in my entire four years. So uh, I thought, well, I don't want to do this. So uh, I asked if I could learn Arabic. Uh, Chinese was too critical a language for the military. And they said, no, we'll send you to advanced Chinese. And so I got out. I didn't want to do that. I knew that Arabic would be an exciting mission mm -hmm. for, for the foreseeable future. This was, you know, pre Osama bin Laden days. And so I, I left the military for almost a year. The, the army broke down and said, okay, we, yeah, we, Arabic is a, it's a language worth learning. So come on back. And the rest, as they say, is history. Oh my gosh. And so when you re-entered back after a, a year break, where were you, where were you stationed, if I may ask? Well, I went back out to uh, Monterey, California, to the Defense Language Institute uh, to learn Arabic. Okay. And my first duty assignment was the air airborne collection mission flown out of Athens, Greece. Okay. So how many languages do you know now? Well, I, I, I would say two. Uh, I have learned Chinese. I gave up Chinese, the study of Chinese, because Arabic was much more important to our mission. Uh, I can still function in Chinese. I can function on the street in Greek. But um, Arabic is as close as I come to speaking another language with any yeah. any competence okay so then uh year year off monterey california um tell us a little bit about the, your military progression from there and what what made you move up the ranks i, I don't want to say so quickly because then it was a 22-year career but you certainly and you're continuing to get recognized for different things that you're doing um, again, some we can talk about, some we can't talk about, but what do you think, what was your progression like after coming back? Monterey, California, how many years? And then were you deployed overseas for a few years? What did that look like? So I went to Monterey, California. The Arabic language is 63 weeks long. Uh, so eight hours a day of Arabic training for a year, three months, maybe. And then I flew uh, airborne collection uh, over North Africa and in the Eastern Mediterranean out of Athens, Greece. From there, I, uh, we closed down our facility. There was a lot of violence in Greece and unrest at the time. So we closed it down, uh, came back and I was an instructor at Goodfellow Air Force Base in Texas. And 
from there, I got hired. Uh, I got asked to interview and join a special operations team. And that's where I spent the next almost 10 years. Wow. Um, and so what do you think was propelling you to excel so much? And, and I, I want to go back and I, I have the, the habit of doing this. I ask a question and I want to immediately go back to something else. But the reason why I'm asking this next question is you were talking about making yourself a complete person, right? Continuing to learn and grow and you're still continuing to learn and grow. Um, what do you think was driving you to excel no matter what that role was? You kept on getting better and better. What, what was driving you, John? Uh, there are a lot of things that drove me. Uh, the, the fear of failure, I, there, I just, I, initially I was terrified of failure because I didn't want the negative attention that comes along with failure. Uh, but then there was a one moment that I can recall uh, and it's a story that I would tell anyone where I learned that, well, that was stupid and don't ever do that again. So I was, uh, I'm, I'm semi-intelligent and uh, I learned foreign languages fairly quickly and fairly easily, which is a gift that I'm grateful for. Mm -hmm. And when I was in Chinese school, uh, I was near the head of my class. I was ranked number two in the class behind a Chinese American girl who had a bit of an advantage, <laughs> but uh, no, no sour grapes there. The, uh, I, I was set to receive the, uh, you know, I was on the commandant's list. I was going to get an award at, at graduation for my performance in school. And uh, I was all very exciting, <clears throat> but then I was talked in just doing something stupid with a friend of mine who was a Marine. We were both 18 years old and, and not quite, mentally 18. Mm -hmm. uh, so our final test, we decided we weren't going to take the test. We would just uh, make up our own story and the translation. And uh, I got a four on the test. He got a zero. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, two days later was graduation and I'm preparing for graduation. And I was notified that I would be moved to the very end of the graduation roster. Uh, and I was confused and didn't read the small print. Uh, so you need to have, you know, a grade point average you know, of 97 or higher, and you have to be in the top 10%, all of that stuff. Uh, but there, in the footnote, there's a, uh, a requirement that you must have zero test failures throughout the duration of the course. Oh. So because I was childish and immature, I failed the last, the last test, and I was removed from the commandant's list as a result. I was embarrassed and I was ashamed and that's, I vowed, I will never be anything but first in any school I ever go to. Um, it kind of a, a bold thought for me at the time, Yeah. but it, it, uh, I kind of lived up to that. Uh, I, I, you know, I don't like telling stories about myself in that regard, but from then on, you know, I was at the top of everything I've ever done. Yeah. And whenever you just said something about it was fear of failure, you didn't want that attention. Right. And, and I have seen that with you from a volleyball perspective. I'll go up to you, coach, and say, congratulations, right? Nice win. And every single time, you have a hard time accepting that. It's always about the, the ladies, the players, the girls. It's always about the team. It's never about you. And I've you know, I've been within earshot when you've been interviewed by the local newspaper 
And the same thing, it's never, you don't ever allow it to be you. So that's really interesting that part of that has driven you to avoid the attention because of failure, but also you seem to avoid the attention even for your success. Well, I think that we're, we have to remain humble. Uh, it's okay to be successful. This is just me, you know, talking yeah. to you. Yeah. Uh, it, it's okay to be successful, but uh, as they say, pride goeth before the fall. And, you know, I, I am, I'm careful that I, you know, I don't want to present, present myself in a light that, that, you know, I'm, I'm overwhelmed with my own success. Look how yes. great I am. I would never do that. Uh, you know, behind every success is someone or some ones who helped you get there. And in the, the case of the team, it's the girls who play the game. And in, in the case of our program, it's my coaching staff, mm -hmm. you know, in, at, in my profession, it's the team that's executing the mission. Yeah. They're the ones who we make or break ourselves there. Yeah. Which then obviously leads into your leadership style. So from a military perspective, and we'll talk about volleyball next. How would you describe your style when you were a first sergeant? How would you describe your leadership style? And what would the guys uh, or men or women say about you as a leader? That, uh, good question. And I'm happy that what I would start by saying is if you talk to anyone that served with me, for me, under my, my leadership, uh, you'll it, universally you get a oh wow best first sergeant I've ever known, uh, mm -hmm. and that's that really is what I'm after, and I I, I want I want the people I, I I'm a servant leader I firmly believe in servant leadership, uh, my style is participative delegative, but it's also uh, you know I build and release, mm -hmm. uh, that's kind of what I'm after, and so I guess that you know, when I was a first sergeant, the thing that really set me apart and the reason that I was memorable is because I didn't have, to, I, even though everyone knows that, you know, the, the hierarchy is set and everyone knows their role and their place, I, I don't have to be the most important person in the room. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm certainly the senior person in the room and I have the most authority. And when I tell them to do something, they're going to execute it. But I want to hear what they have to say. I want to hear what they think. If there's a better idea, let's let's do it that way. Uh, I've never cornered the market on all the brilliant ideas, and uh, certainly, you know, a fresh a fresh look at things could give, give us a better way to do them. So, and I think that that's what made me stand out as a first sergeant, and that's why my units were always so successful, because I built soldiers, and then I empowered them to go do what I taught them to do. So mm -hmm. if anything happened to me, the, the ultimate goal is if anything happened to me, the mission continues and the team has inherent leadership. Uh, so yeah. they're going to execute on their own. And that, that reminds me of a story that I share with participants and audiences about, are you a buffalo or a goose? And the story goes, and I'll just ask that, that question. There's no context around it. Half the audience will raise their hand. Oh, I'm a buffalo. Or half the audience will raise their hand. Well, I'm a goose. And the point being is that when... I guess during when uh, Americans settled North America and the buffalo almost became extinct is because when they were hunted, the hunters would kill the lead buffalo and the rest of the herd would stop. They wouldn't know what to do. And then they became easy prey to be targeted by the rest of the hunters. As opposed to a flock of geese, they fly in formation 
And if the flock is hungry, the goose or the gander that's best at finding food takes the lead. If the flock of geese is lost, the goose or the gander that is best at navigation takes the lead. And when they fly in formation, they're flying 70% more efficiently, but they're taking turns, they're sharing responsibilities. And I mean, that's almost what you just described to a T, that you, you empowered the men and women that you led, uh, and then you allowed them to make decisions and do things. So you obviously had to have a lot of confidence in order to be able to do that. Where did that come from? Uh, it came much later than you would imagine it would have or should have. Uh, I've, I, I think, you know, I've, I have a facade. Uh, I learned, my facade is kind of silence. I learned that, you know, the old adage, it's better to remain silent and be thoughtful than to open your mouth and remove any doubt. Mm -hmm. so that's one of the things that drives me is if I'm, if I'm not the expert, I, I'm, I'm in receive mode and I'll listen to what people have to say, people who know more about something than I do. Just because I may be the senior person in the room doesn't mean that I'm the expert mm -hmm. on the current topic. So I'm content to listen. Uh, but uh, I've also learned to master the craft. Uh, and that's something the military taught me. There are so many thoughts running through my head. I want to dump them all out on you. Yeah. Uh, so the military teaches a, a, a leadership kind of mantra. It's called be no do, where, where you have to be the soldier that you want your soldiers to be. You have to know all of the things that you need your soldiers to know. And you have to be able to do everything that you're asking your soldiers to do. So from that perspective, if I am the soldier I want you to be, if I know all the things I'm trying to teach you and I can do all of these things, then that I, I'm in a position of competence and confidence. Right. And, uh, you know, I don't need to be the fastest guy in the formation, but I, I can't be the slowest. You can get drugged down at the back of the pack. Yeah. Uh, but there's one other thing I wanted to share with you, which is, which is, uh, is relevant. I think, uh, one of the things that I teach my captains, certainly my volleyball captains and, and my team leaders and squad leaders and platoon sergeants, um, in airborne operations in the military, there are two types of exit. And uh, as you know, I'm also a free fall parachutist, which is a little bit different from static line jumping. Mm -hmm. um, but just you're going to execute, you're going to jump out of an aircraft. That's going to happen. Mm -hmm. So there are two ways to do it. There, so the jump master will tell you, you know, when it's when you're over the drop zone or over the target area, go, go, go. And all the jumpers, they just run and jump out of the back of the aircraft. Then there's another leadership style, which is follow me. Mm. And then, you know, the jump master goes out first and then you have a bunch of screaming, you know, <laughs> parachutists following him out the door. Everyone wants to follow the guy who says, follow me. Yeah. Yeah. And so as a parachutist, I guess you would take the, the latter style. Oh, yeah. If we're yeah, jumping yeah. out of an airplane, I'm, yeah. my word, last thing I say in that aircraft needs to be follow me. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Um, I love what you said about be, no do. That has so many applications. And I'm just thinking, John, that's probably, that should be your next book. Or I'm going to steal the title and we're going to write it together. Be, no do. There's so much application from a business perspective, not just from a military perspective or a coaching perspective, a life perspective, as well as a business perspective. And I shared with you, this is going out to approximately 20,000 listeners. 
and and we're hoping that it begins to inspire and give other people ideas based on your experience of how they can incorporate some of your stories into their everyday life and in their everyday business life to make it better. Before we move on to volleyball, because I do want to chat about that a little bit too, um, you know, a year and a half ago, and this is nothing new to our listeners, you know, I had the heart attack. And as a result of coming back and I was watching the semifinals of the varsity team and the, uh, the finals of the varsity team in the ICU unit, right on my little, my little um, smartphone. But, um, you know, when I came back, I felt different and I looked at things different and I had different appreciation. And I vowed that I never wanted to forget what I went through because it gave me a sense of being grateful, appreciative, and then also alleviated a lot of the worry so that if I did not do well with this or something negative happened there, or I didn't get a speaking gig that I wanted, in the grand scheme of things, you know what? We're here. I'm still here, right? My heart is still beating. I'm still smiling. I'm still with my family. That it really boiled it down to the essence of things. And I know you had uh, far worse situations with um, almost losing your life. Uh, are you okay just to kind of share about perhaps a little bit of this story and about how your thinking had changed as a result? And we don't need to talk about it if it's not comfortable. Yeah, I'm. Well, I'm not a, I, you know, I'm not part of the, uh, I'm not going to say that. Uh, things just don't bother me. And, you know, I, I don't get offended. I choose not to get offended so that it doesn't bother me there. Yeah, if something's classified, I won't, I won't broach that subject. Uh, or if something is, you know, significant to me and to someone else, I won't tell someone else's story. Mm -hmm. But uh, to answer your question, I, I think, yeah, at, certainly life-changing moments when you're facing your own death. And, I, you know, in, in my case, uh, so I was, I was in an event uh, where I was significantly injured, compound fractures, bones sticking through the skin. My left leg was about 25%, the lower 25% was separated from my body and, um, and kind of bleeding and, you know, waiting, you know, had to Black Hawk helicopter came in and took me out and took me to trauma surgery. And, um, but I was bleeding from so many different places uh, and I was undergoing transfusions and they're pumping blood into me and I was losing it faster than they could put it in. And uh, so one of the most um, memorable comments from the doctor was trying to save my life with, uh, in various states of awareness. Uh, I was told that if we can't stop the bleeding, you're not going to live through the night. And you know, so I had to like, well, you know, if you have to amputate, amputate, you know, close it up, whatever you got to do. And uh, I remember thinking, you know, I, I, I got to see my kids. I have to mm -hmm. see my kids. And um, but a lot of things happened that day. And they you summed them up fairly well where, you know, what, what's important. And, you know, all of the things that we spend a lot of time being offended or hurt or disappointed about. Uh, you know, we're, we're still here. And uh, you've heard me say it before you ask how I'm doing, I'll tell you, well, I'm vertical. I'm in another bonus day. So what is it? What's there to complain about? Yeah. Uh, but yeah, from, from that moment on Bart, I, I, I said, so, you know, the things that are important, you know, my, I, I guess that it also helped me, you know, 
win today. You know, mm-hmm. here we are. We're here right now. Um, that is also that you've heard me teach my teams uh, the concept of future if, not past if. Uh, don't spend your time uh, thinking about, well, if I had only done this, then maybe I would have been successful. And you know, turn those things into now and future things. And that all sort of happened for me around the same time. Yeah, uh, there, would be, there would be no more looking back. It's, you know, I'm alive right now. And let's see what I can do with it. And then, you know, if I do this. Yeah. And then, John, you're breaking up here just a little bit. Sorry. Could you say that again? If I do what? Sure. Um, it is, as long as we take the if and turn it into a present and future concept, <clears throat> it's going to serve us a whole lot better than looking back with regret or, you know, sorrow over things that we might not have done or things that, uh, and this it dovetails nicely into the things that you and I talk about, which are, you know, it, what, what have I not done and why have I not done those things? Yeah. So yeah. Live, live, to, live today and look forward to tomorrow. Yeah. And don't sweat the small stuff. And I'll never forget. Yeah. And I can't remember if this was before my incident, my health incident or after, but you came into the gym with, I think it was through uh, an Army Ranger t-shirt and it was, but did you die? Right. Mm-hmm. But did you die? And I love that shirt. I asked you, hey, where did you get it? And guess what? I ordered one like the next day. And that is like one of my favorite shirts. And it just kind of sums up. And I know you say that to your players, right? But did you die? Were you, did, were you able to dig that ball? Yeah. Were you able to run a, a million sprints? Yeah. Did you die? No. And, and so that's that's what that meant to me. Um, and I'm sure there was a different rationale or different meaning for why you came into that shirt and you bought them for some yeah. of the other coaches. Um, yep. Tell us about it. why did you... Why did you bring that statement up with the team? Uh, because it's funny. And, <laughs> uh, but the, in the, in the, mil- the military, the origin of it in the military is there's, there's a concept of the storyteller in the military. And military guy to military guy, the, the storytelling is, is, uh, it is incessant. And everyone has a story and everyone has a better story than the last story. Uh, eventually, uh, you, you've heard enough, <laughs> especially if you're hearing the story again. Uh-huh. So, uh, you know, and every time the story gets told, it gets a little more exciting and a whole lot more color. Uh, but there is you have it's your get out of jail free card. So you don't have to listen to the story anymore. Uh, no matter how cool your story is, if someone throws the but did you die at <laughs> you, your story's over. Because no matter how cool your story is, you're sitting here telling me about it. So I know how it ends. Right, right. Oh, my gosh. All right. Um, I want to switch. That's awesome, Coach. Thank you for sharing. Uh, Speaking of Coach, that's what I wanted to kind of get into next. And then I want to finish the conversation with with, with your writing and things. Um, You had shared about the training individuals, getting them prepared, and then kind of releasing them. Um, I saw that specifically with what you do with the varsity team at Loudoun County High School in Leesburg, Virginia. Are there other things that you do that you've learned from the military from a leadership perspective that you are applying? Uh, Every single day. Uh, And there's one of, there's no shortage of examples. uh, And I I don't, don't want to bore you with too many of them, but the, the, the nature of the team itself 
I build it in the way that the military builds it, where we're single-minded of purpose and we are single-minded of message. And what you hear, I, my captains are empowered. You know that being a captain for me is a very significant undertaking. And I put a lot of responsibility, but I also give a lot of authority. Mm -hmm. uh, so just like in the military, that squad leader, if the squad leader tells you something uh, and you come to me and complain about it, you're going to you're going to gain no ground with me mm -hmm. because I trained your squad leader and your squad leader is executing the intent of the commander. So, yeah, you're going to hear the same thing from me that you heard from your squad leader. You're going to hear the same thing from me that you heard from your captain. Uh, so I, I employ that every single day. The captains are empowered, but I also make sure that before, even before I meet or brief the team on something new or something different, the captains are already aware and they're already briefed and they're already supportive. <clears throat> so, you know, that, that kind of, you know, it's not, I don't want to, it sound like indoctrination where, okay, you have to do this. It's a, it's a thing. It's a concept of respect mutual respect uh it we're not from the same generation but you know this is the team and this is uh that's leadership so as long as they are aware of what i'm trying to do and why that's another concept that i bring into our team my players i don't tell them to do anything unless they know why we're doing it mm -hmm. uh, the more that they understand the more they understand the logic and the reason behind what we're doing the less they're going to question it and the more they're going to embrace it yes so uh, it's just yeah, I could go on all day, Bart. I, yeah, I leave no. with them. Yeah, yeah. And when you talk about engagement, right, they get it. They know the why. They're engaged. And, you know, I've had the pleasure of being in the huddles, especially this past year um, with state finals and semifinals. In prior years, every single match I was in the huddle with you. And I look at the girls and I see their engagement. They are paying attention to you. They're looking you in the eye. Even if what you're saying is not, complimentary you were they're still engaged because they understand the why and they're looking to you i did have a question with regard to captains and the selection process can you tell our listeners about the selection process for your volleyball captains what does that look like what's the process uh so i spent a lot of time trying to understand that this is pure leadership uh, from my perspective that they're not all the same. And I have to understand, I have to understand them in order to communicate with them properly. Yeah, you've seen it. Uh, there are players that I can yell at all day long and it'll just make them stronger. There are, uh, but there's another player, if I yell at her, she gets very emotional, she starts to shut down. So I have to, I have to understand, there's a lot of work that goes into this. And if I understand their personalities and their strengths and their weaknesses, I can be a better servant leader for them and bring more out of them uh, by using the right methods. And I use the, the same methodology when I choose my captains. The captains, if the captain, if the captain understands that she is a servant of the team, she's going to be successful. So I, I don't, I don't look for the strongest personality. I look for the personality that is most empathetic. I think mm -hmm. uh, where, uh, you know, I'll ask a few questions and, uh, the more aware they are of their teammates or, and their strengths and weaknesses, the better they're going to serve them as a leader. Uh, but uh, but I always I always try to get two different types of personalities. You know, the the workhorse is usually the captain. Uh, doesn't mean it's the most flamboyant. Doesn't mean it's the best player. It's the one who is going to do 
the hard work. And then I want to complement that player with someone who has maybe more of a social aspect to her, mm-hmm. where she's not the one who's going to yell at the players or around her if they're not performing, but she's the one who can bring them back together, um, you know, after a very a particularly difficult conversation or a particularly difficult match. Uh, they have to complement each other. Uh, I have I've not yet met a person who has absolutely everything in them. Uh, I've, I've seen close, uh, but I, I do think that leadership is better when it's complemented. Uh, certain people have certain strengths, and others can round that out for you. So that's really what I look for, Bart: is a yeah. complementary personalities mm-hmm. um, and a servant kind of approach to leadership. And as you just said, servant type of leadership, I remember that they would be your captains would be first in the gym and they would be last to leave. And God forbid there was a freshman player whose parents was were running late. One of your captains was sitting with them outside waiting for their parents to arrive. You know, they were the ones that were helping to put down the nets and set up the nets. So um, yeah, it, not an easy job by any stretch, but I like what you said. You are finding individuals that could complement each other and that have the leadership characteristics and qualities. And they are, oh, the last thing I wanted to say about what your captains, um, you were talking before about you know leadership of training them and then letting them go at a certain point. And uh, you know, even in the huddles, even during very important games and very important match points, you're like, look, I want to let the captains talk in the huddle first. And you stay outside for the first minute, 30 seconds, or the first two minutes. And then you would jump in and offer some strategic ideas. But you're empowering them. And you can see that the people that you pick are the right people. All right, Coach. Um, last type of, last topic that I, I wanted to chat with you. And again, we could uh, we probably need to do this again because I think this is going to be so important and so valuable for our listeners you have written um, some really interesting, incredible books. So the, the one that I have, and thank you for signing it, Thinking Out Loud. And I, I wanted to ask you, you know, when you meet someone like you, the perception, the persona, you're six foot five, you know, you're over 220 pounds, I'm guessing, you are a force. Yet you write with such delicacy is not the right word, intrigue, um, expertise, uh, knowledge, word use, I'm not even picking the right words. But how, how did you know that you could write like this? How did that come about, John? Because it's incredible. Uh, I never, I never considered writing uh, as some a pursuit that I, I wanted to chase. Uh, but I was I, I know exactly when it happened. Uh, I was uh, at, in Athens, Greece, and I was uh, I, I had begun my pursuit of my college degree while I was on active duty. And University of Maryland, global campus, I think it's called now, had uh, an office, uh, a small class there uh, at Hellenicon Air Base in Athens. And I was taking an English class. And I had written a paper and the professor, uh, even though uh, she had a lot to teach me and I was nowhere near a finished product, uh, in her notes to me, she wrote, 
you need to be an author. That is your calling. You must write. And I took it seriously. And if she was just being kind, <laughs> she she sent me on a journey that that ended with that thing in your hands there. Uh, so, but I, that is the moment where I decided, okay, I'm going to write. Wow. And how long did it take you to write this, the first book, Thinking Out Loud? Uh, it took me uh, about eight years. Okay. And, and it's part of this, you said when you were overseas on duty, on yes. tour? Okay. Yep. So, and that's where I'm very different from a lot of other operators, soldiers, warfighters. Uh, I would come back. I, I, again, a story for another time. I would, we would come back from operations or missions or patrols or whatever we were doing, and people unwind in different ways after you know the the adrenaline goes up, and then you have to bring yourself back down. Um, and I would put headphones on, and the first thing I would listen to was Five for Fighting's "Easy Tonight" because you know, that was always the song I listened to when I lived through something. Mm -hmm. And I would sit at my laptop and I would write. And so I wrote the vast majority of thinking out loud in Baghdad. Oh my gosh. Wow. And did, did the story come to you or did the story grow as you began to write it? Uh, well, I, 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 did, I did some training with uh, a professor of children's literature and I learned the writing process, you know, beginning with the end in mind and, mm -hmm. you know, it, you, you don't just sit down and start writing either you know i have a plan i have a storyboard for every every book that i've written so far uh and my characters and i have photos of them you know, i, I want to be consistent in what i say but i, I don't want to say so much that it takes the imagination out of the reader mm -hmm. uh so it, it's it, it's a little bit delicate but in direct answer to your question bart i wrote the chapter about religion first because that's what that's what drove me i was at that point where i was thinking you what what is this about why are we here uh what who's right and who's wrong i was struggling with the the thought of jihad and holy war and crusade and my religion and your religion and how is this affecting us and uh, i was trying to i was grappling with the concept of who's right and who's wrong Mm. And what if my faith isn't good enough? You know, what does that mean to me? So when you read that chapter, that's the first one I wrote. And then I thought it, it was kind of an essay. Mm -hmm. And then it was, well, you know, these these are problems that everyone is probably grappling with at some point. So let's put it into a story. And I cre so I created a couple of characters and I made them have conversations about the things that we all deal with. Oh, amazing. Amazing. And as you referenced that, are those some of the children books that you wrote with your wife, Debbie, as well? Uh, yes, uh, I just I did that kind of it's kind of on a lark. You know, it was um, I wanted because I, I just was so tired of the the same old books that, you know, for for kids at, at bedtime. Yeah. So uh, I started putting together, you know, some alphabet in A through Z of birds and then an A through Z of mammals and uh, one about the ocean and one in space. Uh, but I tired of those fairly quickly and uh -huh. uh, decided that at that and that's when I started writing. I wrote the second book uh, just as I was retiring from the army. I took about a six month break and just hammered out a book. And uh, so, yeah, I, uh, I, I don't know. I don't have a genre where I belong. Uh, maybe at some point I'll have to maybe that's one of those, you know, what are what are you not doing and why? 
Right, right, right. And what do you know you should do, right? But, but yeah. you want to get done. I know I should. Yeah. Well, at least, uh, did you write the children books in time? Like, were your were, were Jacob and Caitlin still able to enjoy them or had they already yes. been grown? Okay. All right. So great. So a legacy to them, right? This is a book that mommy and daddy wrote. How incredible is that? Yep. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Great. Awesome. Okay. Um, and then the the last thing, um, and again, I don't know from a connection perspective, typically coach, when I talk to people, um, whether it's, uh, you know, founder of a hotel company or the president and CEO of an organization, if people want to learn more about you, they could begin playing volleyball or have a kid play volleyball at Loudoun County High School, I guess. <laughs> Um, I don't think well, you're very active on LinkedIn. You are the co-founder of Tier One Volleyball Club, but is there a way if someone wants to find more about your book, uh, your books rather, or learn more about you? And I know that you and I had briefly talked about, yes, we're going to go on a speaking circuit with some other friends and being able to pull in some real life experiences, mine from a, a hospitality perspective, yours from a military perspective, and a few other dear friends that you had referenced. But how should people learn more about you and your book well uh, specifically about the books uh well um i what i would say is that uh if they know how to get a hold of you they know how to get a hold of me all right that's fair enough that's fair enough Bart, and most people don't and coach i want to leave with um with this last thing and it's a compliment to you when i first started coaching with you at loudon county um one of the things that you said to the players was you are never going to be in a position where you are more safe. And that really stuck with me. And I was going through a very difficult time a couple of years ago. Uh, and, and you probably remember this and I called you up and I was like, coach, boss is really mad at me for this. And I reached out to you because you weren't necessarily just saying that to you, the players that they were safe and they were protected. One, because you're a tough son of a gun. And two, you have the moral backing to protect the people that you are leading. And I called you up and you just gave me some real simple advice. And you said something in about three minutes and it made me feel better. And that's probably from all the background of what you've gone through, what you've seen, you don't let things bother you you were able to immediately calm me down and make me feel safe. And for that, it's crazy. You know, I am loyal to you, Coach John Senchak. So um, I can understand why players are loyal to you. Um, your military teams are loyal to you. Your operations teams are loyal to you. You certainly are a gentleman that goes above and beyond in so many different regards. And uh, you do what most people don't. Any closing thoughts, Coach? I really appreciate the time. I, I just, I appreciate the invitation. For sure, um, and um, let me just say I'm awfully glad that you're a part of my team. Uh, I don't, I don't do friends well, um, simply because my circle of trust is pretty small. But once you get in there, there's no getting out, so you're stuck for life, Mr. Berkey. <laughs> well, that's what I wanted to hear. All right, again, Coach John Senchak, S-E-N-C-H-A-K, terrific gentleman, leader extraordinaire, and uh, you know a good friend. So thank you, John. Really appreciate it. All right, thank you, sir.